to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Hello. Who do we have this week? We have Danny Croha of the Gories. Oh, yeah. And the Del Toros. Uh, he's in a band called the Demolition Doll Rods, uh, which is excellent. Um, all those bands hailing from uh, Detroit, Michigan. Um, we talked a lot about, you know, his influences of, you know, 60s garage rock, which is kind of what uh, the Gories is known for doing, kind of a more punk rock take on 60s garage rock. Yeah, yeah uh, I forgot how much I loved, loved that band. I mean, I think I, I'm just a sucker for that Detroit rock and roll sound. I mean, I'm a mm-hmm. huge Stooges fan. Of course, I love the MC5. And man, I, I, I love Bob Seger, who's <laughs> it's definitely yeah. like not in the same vein, but I think that you can mm-hmm. still hear a little bit of that Detroit undercurrent. I mean, definitely you can hear it in its music. I think it it's maybe represented a little differently than these bands. Definitely not as in the garagey vein, but there's something super salt of the earth about bands that come from that scene. And uh, the Gories are no exception to that. They're they're just a badass. Like what I guess late '80s, early '90s. Yeah. Kind of garage rock band. They they collaborated with Alex Chilton, a big star, on one of their records, and mm-hmm. it's just an exciting guest to have. I was really, really, really excited when Eddie hit me up to tell me he booked Danny for the show. Um, but yeah, so the conversation went well. Yeah, it was awesome. We we got a lot. We covered a lot of ground. Um, we talked a lot about. Uh, you know, like his his growing up in the music scene and what it was like, um, you know, being from such a big city with such a like unique kind of uh, like you mentioned before, a unique flavor of music. Um, you know, also a city that had all sorts of economic issues with like the collapse of the the auto industry and stuff. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so he started from you know his young days of playing punk rock all the way through to now, uh, you know, the so-called city revitalization efforts um, that are going on in Detroit and some of the, you know, some of the ways in which that erases a lot of kind of the Detroit culture that he grew up with. Uh, So it was really interesting. Um, He did tell the story about working with uh, Alex Chilton, and evidently Alex trusted them so much uh, that after he helped him set up and get recording and stuff, he evidently laid down on a couch for a while <laughs> while <laughs> they were the making the record. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, well, dude, I, I can't wait to, to listen to this one, and uh, thanks to Danny for taking the time to speak with us. Um, but yeah, as always, we'll try to let the interview speak for itself, guys. But thanks so much for listening. Write, review, subscribe if you feel so inspired, and most importantly, just... Uh, you know, lend us your ears if you've got some extra time. But uh, yeah, this is Comfort Monk episode to be determined. Thanks, guys. Bye. I was the oldest kid in my family, so I didn't have any big brothers or sisters to turn me on to records and that stuff. So when I was a kid, the only stuff I really heard was whatever was really in the pop culture, mostly like AM, pop, radio, uh, and cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons and that kind of stuff, like Josie and the Pussycats and, uh, uh, the groovy ghoulies and every when i was a little kid like every show was a band you know even cereal like sugar bear cereal sugar bears was a band there was all kinds of like bubblegum pop stuff going on the monkeys shows were in reruns i used to watch that and that kind of stuff so that's you know like as a youngster that's really more the stuff that i was aware of and it wasn't until you know i gotta say like maybe I was about 12 years old, 12 or 13. I started 
listening to the radio on my own and twirling the dial that I found a gospel music station. And I was like, what is that sound? You know? Uh, but you know, mostly I'd listen to classic rock radio, you know, and I was always drawn to the, the old stuff, you know? Um, like what was current when I started listening to classic rock radio was stuff like Ario Speedwagon and Journey and Sticks and Boston and stuff like that, which I didn't dislike, you know, I'm not going to say that, it, but the stuff that I really liked was when they bust out it's Oliver now by the Rolling Stones or you really got me by the kinks or I would hear that stuff. I one time they busted out green onions by Booker T and the MGs. And that's the kind of stuff that I was like, that's my music, you know, for your love by the Yardbirds. You know, when I was a teen teenager, I started hearing stuff like that on the radio and on classic rock stations. And that, that's what really, you know, I considered my, music yeah that's interesting i i wouldn't have thought about um you know that era how much how much music for children must have been coming through the television set and not the radio and yeah that i could definitely feel kind of like the kinks vibe throughout uh pretty much every project that you've worked on so that makes a lot of sense to me were you pretty young when you uh started playing guitar not really i didn't pick up a guitar till I was 18 or 19. Out of, out of high school, were you working or uh, going to school or something? Yep, I was out of high school and I worked. My dad had a factory making um, gas filters, automotive filters. And I worked there, like painting the walls of the inside of the factory and running machines and packing filters and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. So you're really a, a Motor City guy, kind of ingrained with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone here, you know, uh, during that era was making money some way off the automotive industry. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about, you know, back in the day, they used to have the company towns where a factory would build a bunch of, you know, kind of a hamlet around, um, you know, their where they were or their production was at. But like Detroit was right. such a big city and so many different companies and, you know, thousands and thousands of people all went into manufacturing. Yeah. Um, no, people moved here from all over the world, not just all over the U.S. But um, more, I think the main reason that makes the music scene so rich here is that so many people move from the South. You know, like all the people that move here from Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, North and South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, all the folks from those states who moved here really brought a lot of great music with them. Yeah, it's interesting um, you bring up, uh, you know, Tennessee, because one thing that I was thinking, uh, you know, when I was getting ready for talking to you is um, I, I've a lot of friends from kind of the, the old Memphis, uh, you know, guitar rock scene and stuff like that. And I noticed that you and, uh, some of the, some of your, uh, bandmates have had a lot of, uh, interaction with people from Memphis, you know, uh, Gory's y'all did a, a split with, uh, raining sound, which is kind of a classic, uh, you know, Memphis band. Um, I know y'all have some connections right. to the, um, Oblivion's, um, well, the Gories recorded our second album in Memphis. Oh, um, that's uh, I know you fine. Yeah. Oh, tell me about that. Uh, well, um, a friend of ours was a big Alex Chilton fan, mm -hmm. um, and also a big Gories fan. I wasn't really that aware of Alex Chilton at that time, but he was on this road trip uh, through the South doing research for a movie that he was putting together. And he went to see Alex play in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Um, and this friend of ours had also worked on a cable TV show, filming a cable TV show that the Gorys appeared on. So he had with him uh, this videotape of the Gorys that he'd filmed for this cable TV show, went to see Alex and Alex uh, 
was uh, staying with uh, this guy who Dan, our friend, was also friends with. So after the show, they all went back to this guy's house and they're sitting around hanging out with Alex. And Dan took the videotape of the gorge he had and just put it on the TV. Didn't, you know, say anything, didn't, no uh, introduction. He just kind of slipped it in there. And it caught Alex's attention, you know, and he said, well, well what's that? Who, what band is this? And then Dan told him, oh, this is the Gorys from Detroit. And, you know, they don't have a record out yet and this and that. And Alex was like, oh, no, we did have a record out. We had our first album out by that point. Um, it probably had just come out. And Alex said, well, wow, I really like that band. Um, give one of those guys my number and uh, have him call me. And, uh, you know, I think I might be able to help him out. That's amazing. So, yeah, man. So, um, so Dan Rose, the guy who had this videotape, gave me Alex's number, and I called Alex. And uh, you know, Alex was like, "Wow, man, I really like your band. Um, I think you guys are doing for R and B what the what the Cramps did for Rockabilly." And oh, he yeah. goes, "I have a." Yeah, he said, I have a, a deal with a European label called New Rose Records, uh, kind of a production deal, and I'd like to, you know, record you guys here in, well, he might have lived in New Orleans at that time, but he said, I'd like to record you guys in Memphis. A buddy of mine has a studio down here, and, um, Was that, you uh, know. uh, Ardent? No, that was Doug Easley, a fellow named Doug Easley. Uh, Arden, I think, would have been way out of the budget. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Point. You know, bands like ZZ Top were recording at Arden. Um, but, uh, no, this guy, Doug Easley, had a studio in his garage, but it was a really nice, you know, for a garage studio, it was a professional garage studio, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you walk you walk into the door of his garage and you wouldn't know you were in a garage anymore. It was a stu- full-on studio. And he had a mixing board that had belonged to Steve Cropper, I'm pretty sure. Um, but uh, so Alex recorded us there with Doug Easley engineering the session. And then the recordings were mastered at Ardent, actually. And we did go to Ardent to uh, master the stuff. That's cool. Uh, the only reason I asked about yeah. Ardent is because we have had uh, Jody Stevens from Big Star on the show. Um, and he he went deep into kind of the the history of Ardent. So that's just why I was wondering about that. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a cool studio. Oh, yeah. So at that, at that time... Um, you know, before your second album came out, uh, when your friend was traveling around showing rock stars, uh, your first one, um, were y'all, uh, touring outside of, uh, Detroit at that point? We hardly, hardly toured at all. Um, we played a few shows in New York city, mm-hmm. uh, played in Chicago, Chicago a couple of times. We went down to Columbia, Missouri for some reason and played with the Untamed Youth. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but other than that, we didn't get out of Detroit. We didn't tour. Uh, you know, and even when we made that road trip to Memphis, we didn't play any shows on the way there or back. Uh, we did play a couple shows in Memphis while we were there. We were there for, I don't know, about 10 days, I guess. Uh but yeah, no, there's a, I guess there's a pretty strong Detroit-Memphis connection. There's a, Mitch Ryder did a not well-known album back in, boy, the late, maybe about 69 or 70, called the Detroit-Memphis Connection, where he went down and recorded at Stax. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, man. So, uh, if y'all weren't playing much outside of Detroit, was that a, a function of there were just enough places in Detroit to keep y'all busy or were y'all not uh, uh, super so interested in living on the road? I think it was thing? partially, it was partially our inexperience. Like we just didn't really know how to get gigs out of town, you know, and there was no internet at that point. So you would have to like, you know, know places in other towns kind of through word of mouth, you know, like you did 
other band on the phone who had toured and be like, Hey, where did you play? What, you know, what was the number? What's the name of that club you played in uh, whatever place? And I don't know, I guess it was just hard. It, you know, we didn't, I, we didn't really have the resources to, to be able to do that. Um, and we were a little bit on the lazy side too, I got to say, you know, <laughs> but we did play in Detroit. We played in Detroit a lot and there were a bunch of places here to play. Um, and there was a cool little scene here. Uh, but yeah, it was just kind of a combination of, of difficulty and laziness. I think that kept us from really going on the road, <laughs> you know, and just like finances, like, it, you know, it wasn't, it was, no one knew who we were. I mean, I think if we could have gotten out to the West coast, we may have done okay, but you know, for us, that was, uh, just too far to go but we did from the first album we got some good reviews from the west coast you know mm -hmm. we got a good one after the first album came out we got a good review out of seattle and you know san francisco and los angeles so i don't know but yeah we hardly toured that's just short answer yeah that's cool um you mentioned, uh, you know, playing clubs in Detroit. Um, I know there's all sorts of famous old uh, punk clubs, um, you know, where like Negative Approach used to play and stuff like that. Were y'all kind of part of the punk scene, would you say? Um, you know, the fledgling punk scene uh, when you were well, playing Detroit, in there? Or? I gotta say Detroit had all kinds of bands and, and it was a varied scene. Um the heart by the time the Gories kind of started playing out, which would have been uh, later in 1986 or 1987, the uh, sort of the first wave of the hardcore scene had already passed. You know, like negative approach and and all that kind of stuff was pretty much over by that time. And I, you know, we weren't into hardcore anyway. Um, but there was a band just sprouting up around that time called the hysteric narcotics, which was a 60s style garage band. And there was another band coming up at that time called the zombie surfers, which was a surf band, you know, and this is like early eighties, mid, mid eighties. Um, and there were guys who were a little bit older than us and could play better. And we looked up to those guys and we would see them a lot and then started doing shows with them. Uh, so there was like a little bit, but Detroit had, you know, aside from like the hardcore punk or those remnants of hardcore punk, um, there was a metal scene, like a hair metal kind of scene. There was a rockabilly. There was some, there was some really good rockabilly bands, um, blues. There was like, there was a good blues scene back then. Um, you know, we had all kinds of stuff, new wavy kind of stuff, people who were, you know, trying to be like on the radio, whatever was hot on the radio, there were bands that were chasing that kind of thing, like REM or, you know, U2, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was a varied scene. Um, and we had our own little sixties kind of sixties garage corner of that. Yeah. What, what were some of those like sixties garage bands that y'all kind of, uh, you know, used as a launching pad for for the gory sound. None. Nothing specifically. <laughs> no, I gotta say there were there were really few of them that I really liked. Um, because I mean, I'd, I'd already started listening to the real thing. You know, like we were, I was discovering Pebbles and Back from the Grave and some of the Detroit stuff. You know, like unrelated segments. Through, I got to say, this band Hysteric Narcotics, which was a really great Detroit kind of 60s style garage band. And they did excellent covers of a bunch of good 60s stuff. And then they wrote some of their some great songs. They're really good songwriters and they wrote great songs in that style. And these guys were as good as or better than any 60s garage band revival band out there nobody knows about them but i mean in my book they're just as good as like something like the liars who i think were okay so i'll say here's the 60s garage bands back in the 80s that i liked i liked the liars i thought the liars were fucking great 
I saw them a couple times in the mid eighties and they were just phenomenal. Um, so I put the liars at the top of that heap and who else did I like? Oh, the mighty Caesars. Billy Ooh. childish, you know? Yeah. Like I, like I got it. a mighty, I got a mighty Caesars record in probably like 86 or 87 or 88, somewhere in that area. And that blew my mind. Um, and then we were aware of like some of the California stuff like Telltale Hearts and, uh, you know, Gravedigger 5. Um, but I mean, I can't say that, that they were an inspiration because we were, already, well, like I said before, we were already listening to the original stuff and we already had a great band in that style in Detroit who we would see live all the time and, you know, do shows with and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I I'm not familiar with um, hysteric narcotics, but I know I've I've seen that before. Were they a touch and go band? No, no, I don't know. They, they, um, yeah, hysteric narcotics was a, a local band got made up of guys who'd already been involved in the like late seventies punk scene, mm-hmm. um, and they started really, they were getting into pebbles and that kind of stuff. And they also had older siblings who had a lot of 45 laying around the house. And like I said, the unrelated segments was one of the best sixties garage bands. And they were quite big in Detroit. They're from here. Uh, in Detroit, a lot of really good garage records were hits in Detroit. Uh, like, uh, Richard and the young lions was a big record here. Um, the 13th floor elevators, you're going to miss me was a big record here. Oh, yeah. Um, pushing too hard by the seeds, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, that those kind of 45s were laying around people's houses and, you know, used record stores and stuff like that. Yeah. So y'all are listening to some real good stuff putting out some good music um what was the was there any kind of uh you know plan um after working with alex chilton um did y'all because i you know so i i I know you know from history obviously (laughs) the out of here came out after that um and uh kind of had some of the the hit uh gory's songs on it um did did alex kind of like teach all anything about uh you know like writing like popular songs stuff like that i, I hesitate to use the word pop, no, he, no. but alex had absolutely no input in that area at all um willfully i mean he didn't see it he thought we were fine the way we were mm-hmm. and he just wanted to capture a good quality recording of the band that's all he set out to do awesome. um and at when we recorded the record, he laid on the couch in the studio and took a nap. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't want to have any say into like, you know, how we wrote songs or how we played them or anything like that. We just got, went in there and played all our songs and he got them down on tape. And then once it was time to mix and he got up and, uh, you know, and then we mixed the record together. I mean, he was very respectful of our input uh, in the mixing stage. Um, I think the most valuable thing Alex did was treated us respectfully. You know, he really liked what we're doing, genuinely liked it. He showed it in the way he treated us. And that made us feel really good about what we were doing because we looked up to him. And if he thought what we were doing was worthwhile, then it seemed to be actually worthwhile, you know. I mean, Alex was the first person who called what I do in music a career. He said, oh, your career, la, 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 or this, you, what about, you know. And re- just referring to what I do as a career was meant a lot to me. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so he kind of had some sort of, like, mentorship kind of streak. Like, yeah, but in a very, just a very quiet way, you know, like mm-hmm. not just, just as a presence, just as a respectful presence who genuinely appreciated what we were doing. Um, that had a lot of 
meaning to us. Yeah, that's awesome. Have have you, uh, you know, obviously y'all have influenced a lot of, of music since, uh, those original three records. Um, have you come in contact with anybody, um, you know, Detroit or otherwise, uh, that, you know, kind of, you could see they were following in your footsteps and you had some kind of chance to, to reach out to them or, you know, kind of legitimize them in some way. I, I can't really say that. Um, I know that there have been a lot of people who have been influenced by us and a lot of people have come up to me and told me so. Uh, we at the time thought we were the last word in what we were doing, you know, we said, okay, we'd listen to some other, some of the other bands coming out doing sixties garage. And we were inspired a lot by back from the grave and Tim Warren's ecstatic, you know, where he was, um, lionizing ineptitude. <laughs> and I mean, and we loved really raw R and B influenced music and blues influenced music. So we wanted to do something with it was really raw and, and primitive and all that kind of stuff. So we thought we were kind of the last word on that. Like what can, what else can you do after this? You know? Mm-hmm. And so we didn't really dream that there would be a whole nother wave after us that, you know, would come up. And so that was, I gotta say that was surprising, but, but nice to see. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely, uh, think Jack White and the White Stripes in general kind of owe, owe something of their, their early successes, uh, to what y'all did before. Um, you're, you're saying, you know, a couple words that you're using to describe, uh, what y'all are going for was like raw and primitive. Uh, and I think that definitely comes through. Uh, and the music. Um, but when you were writing the songs, was there kind of, were y'all making those aesthetic choices to begin with? Were you saying like, all right, we want, you know, this kind of stripped down, noisy, garagey kind of sound, uh, you know, to be, to be part of what we do? Or was it just kind of the way um, that you naturally wrote the music? It was a choice in that yeah we were going for that sound but also that's kind of all we could do you know and we knew our limitations so we wrote within those limitations consciously uh but yeah i mean that's kind of that's kind of all we could do at the time anyway um so so nat part of it was naturally all we could do and part of it was a conscious choice to you know go for that yeah it was a little bit of both you know yeah you you mentioned you know kind of the the limitations of the band um you know it i know it's got to be hard writing songs uh you know rock and roll guitar songs without a bass player um what what was kind of the because since it's since not the Gores, it's actually not hard at all it's not hard at all there's nothing hard about that Okay, <laughs> maybe I'm off base. Then. <laughs> um, yeah, what was kind of the um, the thinking behind that? You know, later on, um, one of your later bands, the Demolition Doll Rods, uh, was a, a very similar setup. Well, okay, where... I'll tell you what, how the gory started like that. Mm-hmm. We were going to have a base at first, you know. Um, the, the really conscious decision in the band was to have a very um, stripped-down drum set. That was a very conscious decision. I mean, as a, I had already been in a band before the Gories. Peggy and Mick had not been, but I was the lead singer of a band. Um, and I always hated it when the drummers would just bash away on the cymbals. That mm-hmm. really bothered me. You know, and we started listening to a lot of Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters and noticing that, and John Lee Hooker, and noticing that often um, there was either no drums or very minimal drum. There's often no bass. And it didn't matter. It didn't change the power of the music. Um, so we were really inspired by that. And so I, I, you know, when we were coming up with the idea of the band, I said, man, we got to have a totally stripped down drum kit. Um, you know, no cymbals. Uh, 
and just Tom Toms, like a Bo Diddley kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was that was definitely conscious. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the idea of you know kind of stripping away stuff, uh, and I imagine a, a, a secondary benefit of that is when you have two guitars um they're not getting shredded by all the treble from cymbals um so since 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 you and mick collins were playing you know different things a lot of the time not having those cymbals kind of cleared the air to be able to hear what y'all were doing which is cool oh yeah no yeah i agree i mean that was why you know i wanted it to be that way um but yeah, we were going to have a bass player and then we just started playing. We, we were both, we were playing guitar and we were like, well, why even switch to bass? I mean, why we just may as well both play guitar. Because one thing uh, was that Mick couldn't play a full chord and he still doesn't. Mick just plays two note, like what they call power chords. He just plays two note chords. And so in order to have a fuller guitar sound, I was able to play a full six note chord like i could strum the guitar and all six notes would ring out so i was able to do that mick just played like the two note chords so between the two of us we kind of could make the sound of one guitar player basically you know yeah that's awesome i love that i i remember a long time ago uh hearing about jimmy page after i think like the first or the second uh led zeppelin album coming out seeing somebody playing a bar chord where they played, you know, like the, the, uh, the third to make the chord major or minor. And he was like, I didn't know you could do that <laughs> with a power <laughs> chord. It's kind of funny. Right. Yeah. yeah so, so that's cool. So, so you and Mick and Peggy were all on all of the, um, the Gory's records. Um, right. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, um, where, where'd y'all go after, or where, I know everybody has been busy. Um, and I know you and you and Mick have done some stuff together, uh, since the Gories, but what, what was your kind of next move after the last, uh, Gories record? Um, well, we, we toured that we did that one tour in Europe. Um, but we'd already been a band for seven years at that point. Um, or almost seven years, and that was a really long time to us. And we were just starting to see a little bit of success, um, you know, by touring Europe and also uh, playing in Detroit. You know, a few more, you know, there might be like 50 or 75 people showing up to see us, which was a big deal because before that it was like 10, you know. Mm -hmm. So, So we were starting to see a little bit of success, but we were just burned out as a band by that point. Um, and so after the tour in Europe, we were fighting a lot and we broke up after that. So, um, you know, Margaret, uh, from the doll Rods had been on the European tour with us, um, selling merch and stuff. And so she really loved the gores and, and wanted to continue doing that kind of stuff. And she'd already played guitar a little bit. So um, she was like, well, you know, I've got this idea of a band and I want to call it Demolition Doll Rods. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a great name. And she was like, yeah, and I, I want it to be an all-girl band, but I was wondering if you would be a girl in the band. I was like, oh, that's a <laughs> wild idea. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure, you know, let's, let's go for it. So... I did that. Peggy had wanted to move to New Orleans since we, when we were recording in Memphis for that second album, Peg and I made a side trip down to New Orleans and she loved it. I mean, I, I thought it was cool too, but she was like, man, you know, I want to move to New Orleans. So after the Gorys broke up, she moved down there. She's been there since. Um, and then you know, I don't know, Mick and I kind of tried to do the gores with a different drummer, you know, after that, but it just, mm-hmm. to me, my heart wasn't in it anymore, you know, and I, I think Mick really wasn't either. So then Mick kind of like started making moves towards the dirt bombs and did the dirt bombs. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, nobody can blame you after seven years and three albums and all that work to to try to do something new um 
Yeah, Demolition Doll Rods uh, is awesome too. Um, I I didn't know the backstory about her wanting to be an all girls band, uh, but I definitely got that kind of cool like glammy New York Dolls kind of thing, um, from it. So that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean personally, I at that point I was starting to get into more seventies uh, punk stuff, mm-hmm. and super into the Velvet Underground. And I wanted to explore some of that, more of that kind of sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it so the the doll rods combine more of a seventies thing with the sixties thing, and you know, still with the R and B roots and with some Velvet Underground stuff kind of tossed in there. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, is that is that project still ongoing? Do y'all ever play with that? Anymore? Well, we uh, we broke up in '06, but we recently got back together with a new drummer, and uh, immediately started writing a bunch of songs. And we recorded an album uh, a few months ago, which is coming out on In the Red. Hopefully, <laughs> kind of got derailed by the COVID thing, yeah. but um, hopefully, it'll be coming out this fall. Oh, awesome. That is great to hear. Yeah, man. I'm really excited about it. I think it sounds great. Um, we came up with a bunch of really good new songs. And I don't know, man. Sounds like a Dollar Rounds album to me. I'm excited about it. Hell yeah. Yeah, she's got a really uh, good like storytelling voice to me. That's one thing that I really appreciate about that project. Um, yeah, I like her words, too. They're really unique. Yeah, she she makes you listen to the words, which is cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, so so sometime, you know, in between the '90s and now, um, you've done all sorts of other stuff like solo work. Um, you did "Angels Watching Over Me" uh, with a bunch of right. you know, kind of gospel and more like roots kind of music. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier on uh, in our talk that. Uh, some of the the first like music that you sought out and found uh you know individually was finding gospel station were any of the songs on that record like things that you know like you kind of remembered from your childhood man i i can't lie absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) um you know i was raised catholic you know, in the Catholic church and the song we sang in church was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but because I wasn't satisfied with what was, you know, around me growing up, then that's what made me seek out different things, you know? And, um, I don't know. I, I got, I, I love old gospel stuff, you know? Um, and I uh, just started collecting that stuff on record, you know. I can't, I'm not going to lie and say it's part of my personal cultural heritage, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's always around me, you know. Mm-hmm. It's always around in, in the air, more or less. Uh, literally with, like, finding it on the radio, you know. Yeah. I love that record. I remember uh, right around that when that came out, um, me and a buddy were driving um, up to my parents' house, which is about four hours away, and it's kind of all back roads. Uh, and that was one of the one of the albums that we listened to on the way. And I have really good memories of just you know the sun setting and being just surrounded by state parks and stuff like that, and listening to that record. Um, oh wow! Cool. So I, I really, cause you know, I, I, you know, I was born, you know, in 90. So anything that I heard about the Gories when I was younger, you know, they, they weren't new albums when I was younger. So that was like the first thing I think from y'all that I was aware of, um, oh, wow. you know, that was like a new thing to ingest. So I was really into that. Um, I'm glad you liked that record. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I, I won't well, I recorded another one. Oh, you did? I got another. Yeah, I got another one coming out uh, on Third Man again. Awesome. And that may be out in this fall as well. 
Yeah. Man, looking back through the last 30 years, uh, you've sure sure been putting in work on getting stuff out there. Uh, I've like... done all right. There's people, you know, who have done a lot more and people who have done less. I figure I'm somewhere in the middle. But <laughs> <laughs> Do you like working with um, Third Man Records? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've known those guys for a long time. The the whole reason I met Jack in the first place is because he recognized me from the Gories. I ran into him at the Gold Dollar, which was the, the hot spot for the garage rock scene in the 90s and uh, early 2000s, you know. And I was there one night and this guy came up to me and said, hey, are you Dan from the Gories? And I said, yeah. Oh, I'm Jack White. I'm, wow, I'm so pleased to meet you and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah that's awesome yeah i I know that they uh they're the ones that pressed that uh 88 uh gory's show that came out a couple years ago yeah yeah nice that's that's cool i'm excited for that have you been doing any recording or anything at home or is that not really something that uh interests you um no i haven't um I haven't even really played that much guitar. Uh, my wife and I are fixing up an old house. We bought a house that was built in about 1900. And it needs a lot of work. So we've been working on that a lot. That's been occupying most of my time. Oh, very cool. Is it kind of a, like, are you stripping it down to the studs kind of situation? No, I'm not a fan of that stripped down to the studs method of renovating. Um, I try to keep as much original stuff as possible, you know, mm-hmm. as much original plaster and all that. I mean, the original plaster is a lot better than drywall. So I try to keep as much of that as possible. But unfortunately, the original plaster, much of the original plaster in this house was in bad shape and it wasn't really uh, well made to begin with that some reason the substrate of the plaster was very sandy and dry so we did rip down a lot of that but you know kept the uh lath underneath it and, so you can still re- replaster it well you know i'm just what i'd like to do is put the drywall over the lath and i think that adds a bit more strength than rather than ripping down all the lath and just drywalling on the studs. Yeah, for sure. And probably that lath, but, you know, the the weird thing, not to get off too much of a home improvement tangent, but the weird thing is, like, if you have a room that's all lath and plaster, and then you have to replace one section of it with drywall, the drywall is kind of, like, perfectly straight, you know, compared to the lath yeah. and plaster. Um, so maybe having the lath underneath the drywall will kind of force it more into those natural kind of the curvature of the rest of the room. Um, yeah, that's a, I never even thought of that, but that's a good point. But uh, yeah, I could do a whole, sh- I could do a whole interview about <laughs> <it. laughs> yeah, restoration I, and renovation. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I won't, I won't, uh, I'll cut some of this out. So your entire interview isn't just, uh, me talking about lath and plaster. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Um, so I, I know that um, the city of Detroit has done a lot of revitalization efforts, um, you know, in the past decade or two. Um, is there any kind of like program or anything like that that's, uh, you know, helping you keep some of the historic details of your house intact? No, Detroit's really backward in that sense, which is kind of good in a way because you can do a lot of. Um, work under the radar let's say (laughs) that's good um yeah no we actually take advantage of that um no detroit i don't know man detroit's weird um one thing that happened in detroit is there's this sort of billionaire savior who bought a lot of stuff downtown which i don't think is really the best way to go but that seems to be what cities are in are looking for now is these billionaire saviors, even the country, you know, it's like the age of the billionaire 
mm-hmm. um, which I think is a problem, really. Uh, you know, with the income inequality for one thing, and also it it promotes sort of a monopoly kind of culture when got one guy buys up all the stuff and and uh, you know, so it's sort of a corporatization and kind of a monoculture of corporatization, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, so that there's that kind of thing, um, going on where this, the, a lot of the revitalization downtown has been because of this billionaire, uh, guy who's actually in the loan business, in the mortgage business, uh, has bought up a lot of buildings down there and, and renovated them and attracted high end retailers, which is another thing I really don't think is, uh, the city really needs is, is high end retailers, you know? Yeah. We have that problem yeah, that's the route they're going in. And then, you know, Detroit's been getting lots of publicity over the last few years with the comeback and this and that. And I'll travel different places and people will ask me what, wow, I've been hearing all this stuff about Detroit. What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, well, this is what's going on in Detroit. White people are moving back to Detroit. You know, because in the mm-hmm. 70s, all the white people got out the hell out of Detroit. You know, after the 67 rebellion, uh, all the white people skedaddled, you know, um, to the point where parents in the suburbs would tell their children, don't go into Detroit, you know. Um, and now all those uh, children, are, all those white children are moving back into Detroit. And so that means money because all the white folks have the money. And then it means revitalization and so, you know, that, that suddenly it's news, you know, it was, it wasn't news before when there were people, mostly black folks here, staying here, holding down the fort, making their way any way they could while the auto industry, you know, disinvested around them. Um, but once, you know, white people started moving in and, and investing money and fixing up houses and this and that, then it was news, you know, mm-hmm. um, but the you know what was I going to say? My train of thought derailed. <laughs> but anyway, that's why it was new. Yeah, that that reminds me of. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with the band uh, Parquet Courts, uh, but I've heard the name. I'm not familiar with their music. Worth checking out. But one of the songs uh, he says, uh, "What's the up and coming neighborhood, and where are they coming from?" Which I think is a good oh, right. kind of reflection on that. That sort yeah, of, that's exactly uh, yeah, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I gotta listen to that now. Politically correct uh, racism, you know, the sort of uh, oh yeah, you know, call sure, things man. up and coming instead of saying, you know, gentrification or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, we just on a tangent. We have a big uh, kind of tourism district uh, in my city. And it's pretty huge. Uh, and for like a four block radius, pretty much every building is owned by the same person. And it's just. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. All the all the, the low income housing is owned by the governor of South Carolina, who's a slumlord. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. It's terrible. What can you do? Well, I guess that's a little fighting? different. That's a, li- yeah, that's a little different from what I'm talking about. But. That kind of stuff has been going on in Detroit for years. In fact, we bought a house from a slumlord. You know, there'll be like a, a white guy who will own, you know, a hundred properties in the city of Detroit or something like that and be renting them out and just barely maintaining the house, you know, just enough so that it's just livable. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's been going on for years, you know. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. But so have you lived in Detroit the whole time? So you've yeah. Kind of, you've kind of seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, when all the white people abandoned Detroit, um, you know, those that were left, I don't know. I mean, that's why a lot of the, the sort of punk and art kids moved down to Detroit because it was so cheap. And everybody, all the other white people thought it was so too dangerous to live in. You know, I mean, it's the same story with every place. You know, all the the arty people who aren't racist <laughs> will live there and and take advantage of the cheap rent and do their art. 
Um, and then, you know, that, that makes it safe for other white people who see that and go, oh, I guess maybe it's not that bad. And then, you know, that's the process of gentrification, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, you know, and now, I mean, for the first time in my life, I'm sometimes, I get the vibe of pe- people of color looking at me as a threat, where, like, my whole life I was a minority in the city of Detroit, you know? I'm once, like, more and more white people are moving in, displacing people. I'm starting to be looked at as not just this sort of oddity, but a, a, but actually a threat, which is strange too mm-hmm. for me. You know, but I understand. You know, yeah, it's I, like I how do you that. how do you wear your credentials as someone who is born and raised here? You know, as opposed to somebody that's just trying to, you know come in and take advantage of what's going on. Right. That's right. I mean, I I think, but the stuff uh, that, you know, that kind of, Oh, go ahead. Well, I I think the, the protests this weekend, um, have kind of shown the, the general public at large, how much racial unity there is, um, you know, against, against the cops and against capitalism and against, uh, you know, the prison system. And stuff like that. Um, yeah, I hope, so. I, hope I, so. I don't think they could ignore how multiracial it is now. Um, right, right. You know. Well, I mean, you know, that's their biggest fear is that we would actually all, you know, get reunite against the rulers, <laughs> the billionaires, and what have you. You know. Yeah, for sure. Oh, the last thing I was going to say, they've been doing their best for, you know, many, many years to keep us divided by whatever way possible. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, on that message of unity, Dan, I uh, appreciate your time today. Uh, Thanks for bearing with us with all the uh, technical issues early on today. Um, Thanks, Eddie. I appreciate you having me. We're we're really uh, glad to have you. I'm really excited um, for both those records you've got coming out soon, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Take care. All right, good. You too. This has been a Comfort Monk production. 